0: Hello and welcome to episode 39 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film feet. Blah, blah, blah. blah by film feet. By film feet.
1: <laughs>
0: There's, the fi- There's the outtake. There's the outtake. For film geeks, by film geeks. And we can't get any more geek here The mealy Ford, and my, well, I can't do the show without him. Well, because he has the
1: microphones. (laughs) The Geeky Meek, Andy Meeking over here. The
0: Geeky Meek, I like that. That should be your hashtag. (laughs) Hashtag Geeky Meek. Hashtag Geeky Meek. (laughs) (laughs) So, in this episode, we have a roundup of all the things that are happening due to COVID, and we've got a lot to talk about with that. The usual film news, gossip, and chatter that's out there on the interweb. We'll be talking about Andy's classic film, The Manchurian Candidate, and Andy and I will be reviewing... The Trial of the Chicago 7. But before all that, hey, Andy. It's a bit of a dark week for us this week, isn't it?
1: What we talk about now as just our general introduction is going to segue straight into the news because the news that has hit this weekend and being confirmed first thing this morning, it impacts on me personally, and it impacts on us both for our love of film, cinema, and the industry. We're, We're clearly talking about the fact that with Bond shifting to April next year, the reaction now has been that Cineworld, who own the Regal chain in the US, are going to be closing all of its cinemas across the UK and the US.
0: Well, for me, as someone who reviews for the BBC, I get a call and say, right, you're booked in for, and you know, every couple of weeks I'll come in and I'll go and do something. Those phone calls are sort of drying up at the moment because, yeah. you know, they're not and understandably so. There's more mileage when I talk about blockbusters than there is talking about a film like the Chicago 7, despite yeah. it being a good film, because they know that the majority of people who are listening aren't necessarily cinephiles, they're, they're people who are listening generally to to radio. So the hook is a blockbuster. Without the blockbusters, my phone's not ringing, I'm not getting paid, etc., yeah. etc. So it, it does, it affects all of us. Uh, just as a sidebar before we get into it, I played my first gig in, in my, my tribute band this weekend.
1: Yeah, I saw that. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it down because there was a lot going on.
0: And it was an interesting experience. And I, I bring it up because that was in a situation that was um, as, as possible, and the venue did remarkably well, uh, as COVID safe as you could make it. But instantly, I could see, you know, if if there was to be, an outbreak because of, of of that show, where you could trace it back to, and 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 how it how it could easily that could fall apart, and therefore have a knock-on effect for the other the, the other passion, which is supporting local venues as much as yeah. saving our cinemas. You know, it everything it, it just brought home to me how everything mm-hmm. feels on on such a, a knife edge. And when I I came out of playing a great show. Did, did multiple encores. We were, we went down an absolute storm. People were hungry to see live music uh, as people have been hungry to get back to the cinema. But it, it did bring home. I should have been elated. And I felt really, really down after it because this is the new normal and yes. everything is on a knife edge. And that reflects not only the the live music, but the arts in particular. The, the thing which is the lifeblood People will not admit it, the thing that, that that gets people's pulses pounding, which is the entertainment industry. So yes, of course, every job is important and every everybody's career is important. But, but just seeing how people were hungry for, for entertainment after being in lockdown or, or being locked away, that, that if, if that gets lost, if we lose that, and, and we, we will. We'll lose an yeah. awful lot of it. I, I know of bands who are not coming back. I know of venues that are closed and will remain closed. It just takes away the soul of who we are. And and so saving our cinemas, saving our venues, it, it, it's, it is the zenith of what we should be doing because while well, jobs are important, everybody needs entertainment, everybody needs uh, escapism. And especially in the more darker times, that escapism has never been more true.
1: Very well said, and um, echoing quite a lot of um, my impassioned plea that I posted out on YouTube yesterday morning. A good
0: job for that, Andy. I, I was really, really impressed. And, and, well, it was, uh...
1: it, I'd already recorded my next year in film the previous day, and I was just going to get up Sunday morning and just put, layer in all my poster images and like shots and everything to relate to the films that I was talking about. And by the time I sat down in front of the computer, I was like, I can't focus on that. I've got so much in my head. So I just started the camera rolling and just spoke. And you can see there's no cuts or edits. That was just me speaking.
0: And it was from the heart and you I, could tell that. And that's, yeah, that's it was something
1: know. that I, it was something I had to get out. Same way that on Saturday I posted on my blog site for the first time I actually posted a long chain of thought. And that was just, I needed to get it out. I couldn't just let it sit in my head. It needed to get out in one way or another. It, it was quite therapeutic talking to the camera yesterday and then posting it out and then seeing people reacting to it. I've had the most impact on that video than what I've had on anything. Good.
0: And he deserves to, Andy. He absolutely deserves
1: to. I was scrolling online and I kept seeing my own face pop up as that video was getting shared by other people. <laughs> it was just like, oh, wow. I've, I've, I've obviously hit people close to home. And obviously, there's a lot of people within the industry who have picked up on it and they've been sharing it. But, you know, whilst it's, whilst I'd be able to say, wow, yay, I'm proud. I've, I've managed to get loads of, loads of hits on a video. It's like this is, isn't really how I wanted the hits to be getting on yeah. my videos. I didn't want it to be me reacting to some tragic news, and I realized when I rewatched it that there was a moment that I almost broke down.
0: Well, it's it's emotive. I mean, as, uh, you know, we don't we don't spend this couple of hours every week putting a show together because we're not film geeks. I you know, it's it's yeah. the passion of, of of the life. It's the reason that you and I became friends. It's the reason most of my 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 friend base has has some connection to either music or film or television, it's it's the key to everything. It's it's the route that has moved on and all the branches that have come out of that are all related to, to this industry that that we love and adore. And it feels very fragile. And for the first time, and I think, you know, as I said strangely, having played a gig where I should have been elated and and over the yeah. moon, I actually walked away and when I got home Usually get you know you 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 put all that energy and enthusiasm into into doing an, an hour and a half of what you love and and your passion but usually a walk off and I'm, it's a bit of a high and you're just waiting for the high to come down you get a bit of a, a yeah. you get a bit of a, a drop afterwards it's kind of natural post gig blue but this post gig blues just um, just really wasn't helped by the the first story that we're going to talk about which was the Cineworld news and and that yeah. really set me into a bit of a spiral in a in a way that I, sh- I shouldn't, I shouldn't have felt. Not after playing the first show I played in in over six months.
1: Before we get really into the meat of this CineWorld news, it's definitely worth pointing out that yes, I have a history with CineWorld, and yes, that history ended in a bad, bad way. I, I had my issues, which I've made very public um, each year on the anniversary of me leaving, of why I felt I needed to take redundancy from them, despite the fact that I. I had a safe and secure job and probably would have progressed through. There's very good reasons there. But despite my negativity towards the company as a whole, I feel immensely for the people who are caught up in this. And I would never have wished closing on any of the cinemas across the UK. Okay, so
0: Andy, I mean, with that in mind, if those who've not seen the story or unaware of the facts, give us a lowdown. Exactly what has happened.
1: So late on Saturday night, it was reported by Variety and also the, uh, the Times in the UK that Cineworld were going to be closing all of their 128 sites in the UK, which includes, includes their picture house chain, and all of their 536 venues across the U- US of the Regal chain this decision came about due to the constant moving of blockbusters and bond moving from november was the final straw for the company now we reported way back before the lockdown in march when the industry was starting to see lower admissions because the riot, the start of covid was starting to hit that CineWorld were 32 billion in debt and they said at that point in time they couldn't operate taking more and more of a loss for more than six months this is the effect of that. Cine World have been, I, I believe, they reported one point three six billion loss so far this year, and they've basically gone. We need to, we need to cut. We need to, if we need to operate next year when films come out, we can't stay open now. So they made the decision. So
0: this is a temporary measure.
1: It's, it's a yeah, it's a temporary measure to stop the company from going completely under now. That was reported Saturday night, and then obviously it was all over online the next day, including uh, there's a, a Cineworld employee support group thing that started earlier this year on Twitter who were quick to point out that none of their staff had been told. And I know that none of their staff had been told because I, I, I'm married to one. <laughs> right. So she woke on Sunday morning to the news that she wouldn't have a job, but she got that news via Twitter. Got to the afternoon, and the Cineworld account tweeted out, Oh, it has been discussed, but nothing's confirmed. We're still we're still looking at options, which came so late in the day that it was like, well, if it hasn't been confirmed, wouldn't you have denied it last night when it initially broke? Why have you waited until three o'clock the next day? And then this morning, it was confirmed. So it didn't take them long to actually confirm it, especially when no one's working over the weekend. So it looks like it was confirmed. It just got leaked out, and they were trying to do some damage right. control, which... Again, it, it's that's kind of disrespectful to the staff, who are just getting their emotions played with. And it's upsetting that they've been put through it. It's been confirmed today via Mookie, the CEO of the company, the big boss, who has confirmed that as a preventative measure to stop them having to go out of business and go bankrupt, they will unfortunately have to close.
0: So does that mean that the staff are now redundant?
1: The staff will effectively have to be redundant. I mean, I know that the staff across the UK are generally on zero-hour contracts, right. except for the salaried managers. So theoretically, they can keep 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 them on the books and just not give them shit. Okay. Um I know that a letter has gone out. I've seen a copy of the letter I post online. It's gone out to the regal employees in the US, and none of it says what kind of financial options there are or whether they still got a job. It just says, we hope that when we reopen, you will rejoin us, but we understand if you move on to other things. So there's nothing that get into the nitty gritty of how the team are going to be met with this but obviously we'll start to see news of that over the next couple of days the the bad thing is that the financial support of furlough scheme ends this month yeah. and the new scheme that comes in requires workers to work at least 30 percent of their normal hours and then the government will top them up now with city world closing that won't be able to work because their staff will not be able to work their 30 percent of hours for the government to top up so there's no government there's no government help to the industry. And this is something that I missed off on my video yesterday. My video yesterday was very much, and we'll get to it in a bit, about the distributors and what people can do, what the general public can do. But I need to make it clear that the government needs to support the art sector. Absolutely. Not just cinemas, but like you say, music venues, pubs. All the entertainment sector is struggling and at risk of closing. Cineworld is the biggest chain in the UK and the second biggest in the US. If they're closing, the re- knock-on effects are going to be quite massive because whether Cine- there's been speculation that Cineworld are playing a dangerous game of chicken and they're basically throwing out this to turn around to distributors and say, well, this is what you're forcing. You're forcing cinemas to close and we might not be reopened. So when you're ready to open, release your films, we won't be here. I'm not sure that that's stupid. I think that this is more to do with their financial situation earlier this year, and it was always known that City World would be the first ones to have to close the doors. Odeon have announced that they reckon they've got about six months operations before they will have to close for similar reasons. And this morning they've confirmed that some of their venues across the UK will now only be opening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, right? To cut back on costs, to condense their hopeful same admit rates that they're getting at the moment into a three day period. Whether it works. We don't know because this is this is unknown times for cinemas. Well, this is absolutely unknown. Well, that's the main point for me, and um,
0: you're absolutely right, Andy. This is it's not only unknown territory for uh, for, for cinemas and, and, and for for the arts in particular. It's, it's unknown territory for everybody. However, surely one one would think desperate times mean desperate don't necessarily mean desperate measures, and, and measures should be considered for all parts of society, the arts. Yeah. The food industry, everything, you know, we are, if this was a war, and in many ways it is, a war with an invisible enemy, then the consideration should be, let's protect as many, many people as we can, because we, we know this is not going to last forever. It might last another six months, it might last another year, you know, God help us, but we are in, in, in desperate times. I'm waiting to see the government announce whether they're going to do anything for freelancers again like they they did yep. uh, for self-employed people um, a couple of months ago. Nothing's been mentioned about that. You know, they're talking about businesses going under that they can't save everybody in, in the news this morning and we record this on a Monday morning. I don't think that's good enough. We are uh, a society. We are, we are a community. We should look out for each other and we should help each other and I don't feel that... I think the, I think the gap will wi- will widen between the haves and the haves-nots during this and that is a very very yeah. dangerous position to put put a society under
1: something something will break in society um if we continue down this path all this issue on the cinema industry clearly it's the constant moving of the big blockbuster tempo yeah. movies and it, distributors have let theaters down some people yesterday were defending distributors saying well they have to pr- protect their investments yet yeah, but I get it with like your 250 million budget films moving, but they've even moved films that cost less than 10 million that would have easily made that money back internationally, like Candyman. Or films that were mid-range budgets, like Death on the Nile, that would do most of its business in the Chinese and European markets anyway. And they're the markets that are suffering because the US isn't completely open. And this is the reaction to the distributors' Still insisting on worldwide yeah, release schedules. I, I couldn't agree
0: more on it. This also makes me very, very annoyed. At what point are distributors going to put their hands up and say, "Look, we need to, we need to protect not only the interest of our film, but the interest, interest of our theatres, because without our theatres, yeah. we're not going to see it. Unless they're going to go, you know, sod it, let's move everything into into VOD, and you're still not going to make your money back on. No. Uh, Was we seen with Mulan? it didn't work it worked on smaller films yeah. worked on family films but mulan is is the test subject which saw that that it wasn't a it wasn't a proposition that that the general public really really wanted they felt forced into it
1: yeah everyone says oh it, well it, this is all because tenet flopped and flopped worldwide it's like it didn't it flopped in the us cuz the cinemas weren't open the international figures are actually quite respectable yeah and
0: also is tenet the film we said this last week, the films we've yeah. come back with, if it came back with Bond, I think we would have made it made a bigger impact. I think Bond yeah. finds itself in, in European uh, with European audiences, I think. Um, and I love the Bond franchise, and I think because it is so and a typically British franchise that people would have come out with it and widen those windows for box office receipts. Instead of thinking a film is a flop because in the first three weeks it hasn't made back with profit. Stop thinking like that, start thinking along the lines of bigger windows, bigger box office receipts, longer before it goes to uh, uh, VOD or Blu-ray or whatever platform it's going to go on, extend theatre windows and don't worry about your opening weekends anymore, because those opening weekends are now out of the window.
1: Distributors let theatres down during all this. Some chains have changed their methodology to film selection and embraced split releases to video on demand, breaking 12-week windows, or doing deals with normal streaming services, looking for anything to entice people back by keeping some business... And we'll be talking about that later, in fact. Yeah, one one particularly amazing film we will talk about later. Disney made promises earlier this year that we reported on at the start of all the lockdowns where they were, yeah, when cinemas re- are ready to reopen, we're going to support them completely, blah, 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 blah. And then did, did the Mulan move and moved everything else later. So they backpedaled on what they were saying warners are basically responsible for the cinemas opening internationally because he says we know you've got government grants and all that to protect your business and all that but if you just get rid of them we're going to give you tenants and that'll bring you all the money in and then we'll bring you some more films yeah 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 you're open now we'll be moving all our other films now so warners basically dropped cinemas internationally into it And Universal, at the same time, went, we're just going to move everything of ours. Yeah, thanks. So that's the three biggest studios showing no support for cinemas. Smaller distributors seem to have been the most supportive. Lionsgate are saying, any of our products that you want, we're going to try and get out as early as we can. Some smaller distributors are actually looking at their release slate now and going, we might be able to get you something in October. So everything is juggling the other way from the smaller releases. And Netflix, Netflix opened up their... Key films that they've got coming to the service over the next couple of months to more cinemas than what they normally would. Normally, it'd just be your local indie theatre. But as we reported last week, The Light, it's, which is a small chain across the UK, they have got a deal with Netflix to be able to show the Netflix films, one of which we're talking about in a bit. So a streaming service is more supportive than one of the big three distributors. And that makes you really, it, it really hits the, you know, these. Big distributors aren't the friends of cinema that we thought they were. No,
0: you're not partners in this, are you?
1: No, they're they're doing nothing to help while everyone else is rallying around. And it's good to see the smaller distributors rallying around. And it's good that some cinemas are embracing that and looking for opportunities to show a wider variety of product. This is something that audiences have clamoured for for ages. Why do you only show this, this and this? Why are all your screens took up with just this one blockbuster? Now's the time that a lot of cinemas are showing a wide variety. But what is happening? Are people flocking to see them? No, people clearly don't want the original originality because otherwise Cineworld would not be forced yeah. to close. So audiences as well need to change their perception of what makes cinema. And well, I know we were joking earlier this year that Martin Scorsese kept asking, is it cinema? Well, turns out he might have been right because maybe audiences need to start broadening the horizons a bit. Maybe they need to listen when people like Mark Mode says, go and see Rocks, absolutely brilliant film, one of the best films of the year. Maybe they need to pay attention when they have a couple of weeks before something comes on streaming to see it on the big screen. Rather than saying, oh, why should I? It's, a, it's out for free on Netflix in three weeks' time. Yeah, but you're also at the same time saying, oh, can you get some classics in like Back to the Future, which is available on streaming anyway. Yeah. So don't be a hypocrite. Go and embrace film. If you love film, go and see film. Chances are some of these films that are out at the moment... You will enjoy. You just You will enjoy. And you will regret not having seen them on the big screen when all the big screens are gone.
0: I was I was very enlightened last night when I I jumped onto Twitter and saw the response to um, the light cinema saying that they're staying open and um, a lot of the feedback and the the lot of the the lot of a sense of community that there was there and to some extent smaller cinemas do have that sense of community in a way that that a lot of the big multiplexes don't. Art cinemas in particular always seem to. To have that sense of community where people stick by them, Or we'll go and see anything to to, to be yeah. in that cinema, and I think maybe that's what what the smaller cinema chains can do. We also got to point out this is not just a UK thing. Andy did mention that it's also uh, they're closing cinemas um, across the US. That's the, the US any world chain, yeah, the, which the regal is chain. regal, isn't it in the in the states?
1: And if Odeon are suffering in the UK, chances are AMC, which is part of the Odeon brand, will also suffer. So that's the big two of international and the U.S. who are severely hit by this. And if the big two crumble, well, there's, there's not going to be enough enough cinemas to get bonded money back yeah. anyway. So dist- the big distributors constantly delaying their films is actually making a situation where they may never get to get uh, the money back that they wanted anyway. So why don't they just take a risk? I mean, we were discussing it at work last night because clearly it, this is something that impacts us as an industry. And we were saying, you know, why can't all the big distributors look at all their slates and go, OK, well, we'll take a risk on one of our films. We'll keep these ones till next year. But well, let's all take a risk with one of our films.
0: Absolutely. I, Candyman springs instantly to choice.
1: You have October, you have November, you have December, and they all just risk one film and save the rest to see how it goes. And that will at least be a lifeline to the international cinema yeah. industry. We need something. We have, there is product out there, but it's not the kind of product that people are driving to, despite the fact there's big names in some of this product. The, the, the hashtag Save Our Cinemas campaign that we um, kind of kick-started to life a few weeks ago, which is now generating some marvellous traffic online. I saw
0: it trending on Twitter this morning, to be honest. And I thought, is that down to us?
1: Well, I, you know, the, the hashtag was there before we started using it, but it was very very sporadically used. But it's really grown over this past few weeks. And I think it's important that we keep it going. And it's important to state that this is hashtag save our cinemas for whatever. So this is a, a call out to the government. Give us support. Stop us from going under. Stop us from being forced to close. Save our workers' jobs. It's a call out to distributors. Come on, guys. Get it together. Give us something. Throw us a lifeline here. The international markets are open and are able to do business. And it's a shout out to cinema goers who've been arguing that they wanted some fresh content for a while. It's there. Look for it. Please support it. Hashtag save our cinemas. I'm just going to
0: make one final plea. If any of our listeners, and we know we're a little small show, we're we're a a bit of a a little engine who could in the uh, film podcast world. And we know we're growing. And we've only been doing this just over a year and we we we've seen the traffic and we know we we know we're one of the small guys we are a little independent company ourselves but yeah. if any of our listeners have access or can talk to anybody who may may work in distribution please what we'd like to do is invite uh, anybody from the dist- distribution companies on just to just to argue the case and just tell us their point of view and just to come back, so if you you're out there and you have connections, drop us a line. You can do that on
1: Twitter at Filmfile UK, or if you want to email us, uh, gaming at filmfile.co.uk.
0: We'll be glad to chat to you. and We would love to chat to you. Okay, so moving on from that sad news, let's try and uh, let's try and bolster our enthusiasm by uh, a little segment we like to call the news. Andy, what is the news?
1: So Fast and Furious 9 has moved to... No, (laughs) let's not even go into any more movements. It was obvious that Fast 9 was going to move to May 2021. It's not big news. It's just moving back further and further. We're going to... I don't want to dwell on this because this relates too much to everything that's already been spoken about. So let's move on to things such as a sequel prequel to the live-action Lion King. Is there now? Yes. It's going to expand the origin and background of Mufasa but also apparently move the story forward afterwards, which hints at some moments of Simba as king with flashbacks to how he's growing as a king compared to how Mufasa was early in that role. The script is in good hands. Uh, Barry Jenkins um, from Moonlight is going to be directing. Very it.
0: interesting choice.
1: Very good choice. And uh, with, with the, a screenplay by Jeff Nathanson, who gave us Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Indiana Jones for The Crystal... Oh, oh, oh. oh, oh moving on. Oh. Sorry, uh, that wasn't as good, the good news that we were hoping. I've finally got round to watching that Lion King live action, and I thought it was the most pointless film. ever. I've not ever got
0: round to watching it. it yet. The, the, the child's watched it and uh, loved it, but never saw the original. So perhaps yeah, that meant
1: something. It, different it is to just him. the original, although it lacks the emotive expressions of the faces of the cartoon version,
0: which is interesting from Favreau because he's a he's a director who, who always passionately cares about his projects, and and he did something so different with Jungle Book.
1: Yeah. It, it's because everything looks so real in The Lion King, so you're you're just watching lions talking as to, to each watching other characters. in human voices, as opposed to watching characters. So it lacks that impact that the original animation had, and it was completely pointless a remake. But this being a whole new story, okay, this might work. This could be something different. Okay, Borat Two. We've spoken about this a few times. Yes, turns. we did. It's getting released directly to Amazon at the end of this month, just in time to hit the pre-election buzz.
0: Now this is great. I like the. I love the fact that, that Sasha Baron Cohen has managed to make this under the radar, and 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 still managed to produce a a, a feature film despite the fact that he's 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 is probably more recognizable across the world yeah. than he is as an actor.
1: I, I mean the trailers out there, and I found myself chuckling watching the trailer.
0: Andy, do you want to give us? The full title of the film.
1: Well, it's kind of tweaked since we last gave it because when we last said it, it was um, Delivery a Pornographic Monkey.
0: Yeah, it's not that now.
1: To No, it's now The Borat, subsequent movie film, Delivery a Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit, Once Glorious Nation, Kazakhstan.
0: See, it's changed again (laughs) because it was was, uh, um, Mike Pence inspired. All I can say
1: to that is nice. I mean, from the trailer, you can tell that um, the plot line is that he wants to gift his daughter to Mike Pence for all the thanks for how he's been working with Kazakhstan. Because he's so well known, you see the elements in the trailer that we spoke about last time, where he's disguising himself as other characters in order to catch people out. <laughs> I I can't wait to see this can't play out. Can't wait at all. I think, I think he's just so sharp and on the nose when he does uh, this kind of comedy, and yeah, it's been, was it 2004? I know, and the, the world has changed so much out? since then. It's, it's about time we had a resurgence.
0: Okay, I've got a bit of news. Uh, Clint Eastwood, he's back. I, I mean, I, I don't know how old Clint Eastwood is now, but he's to direct <laughs> and star in a film called Cry Macho.
1: I've not heard of Cry Macho. What is it?
0: So Clint Eastwood might be, well, around 90 years old now. So he's a veteran actor, a filmmaker, and, but even his age... Is not, not let him stop in the last few years. He's, um, he's still directing, but he's not been in front of the camera. So Crime Man Show is an adaptation of an N. Richard Nash novel of the same name. Eastwood will not only direct, but also star in the film, which sounds like the closest he's gotten to making uh, a Western again in the last few years. Now, Clint Eastwood and Westerns are so interrelated. The, the book was published yeah. in 1975, follows a washed up horse trainer and former rodeo star, named Mike Milo, who schemes to make $50,000 by snatching a streetwise Mexican boy from his alcoholic mother in Mexico City and delivering him to his father, Milo's ex-boss in Texas.
1: I, it's, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see Eastwood back in familiar kind of territory, because I've not been that enamoured with no his work of recent years. The last
0: few years have definitely, definitely lacked, the lacked subtlety, for, for, for want of a better word.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah I know that his Richard Jewell film which was earlier this year, got... A a lot of people really embraced it, but...
0: It felt like a political manifesto as opposed to a film. Yeah,
1: it it altered so many details from the actual true story that it it left a bitter taste in my mouth. Yeah, didn't like it. It was well-acted, the cast were great, and the underlying story is really, really, really important, but it lacked something. So I'm hoping that this could be, like, you know, a, a good return to form for, you know he's been a focal point on pretty much all of my film life. I loved his Westerns when I was a kid, and I still love them now. And I've stuck with him ever since. I can't name really
0: much of an era where there wasn't a great Clint Eastwood movie.
1: Yeah, he's he's been so prevalent throughout cinema for, well, the better part of the past century.
0: Here's a shocking piece of news, which has got us both scratching our heads.
1: Oh, are you, are you segueing into... I am, it's a segue. Um, you're segueing into Jamie Foxx, Apparently going to be returning as Electro in the third Tom Holland film.
0: Yes. Now, clearly, that's as much as everybody knows, apart from the one fact that Jamie Fox this time isn't going to be blue.
1: It's he's he's going to be playing the character, but not the same character. No one knows much about how it's going to be. No doubt it'll end up being that you know Tony Stark betrayed him or something, and so he now hates Spider Man because um, Iron Man isn't around because every one of the Spider Man villains in this new franchise has been because of Tony Stark. Yeah. Which is the one thing that I've not really liked. I'm hoping that it's not. I'm hoping that it is going to have direct relevance to Spider-Man this time now that Iron Man's not around. Yeah. But it is intriguing that they're bringing you know, they've already brought J.K. Simmons across from the earlier Spider-Man films. Now they brought Jamie Foxx across. How much of this is going to be them basically creating a multiverse?
0: The the Spider-Verse exists in the comics so potentially. It could exist in the films.
1: So is anyone else going to come across? Are we going to see occasional appearances of maybe earlier Spider-Man, which a lot of people have been clamouring for? And there have been hints that the next Spider-Verse animated movie will be playing with that idea. But it's very exciting times for Spider-Man fans.
0: Yeah, no one saw this one coming at all.
1: And I know that a lot of people kind of look at it and go, oh, but that film was terrible and Electro was terrible. It's like, yeah, but don't blame the actor for the end result. Because Jamie Foxx, we know, is a great actor. And when he was originally cast as Electro, remember how excited we all were?
0: It wasn't a particularly bad portrayal of Electro. No. It, it was, was just
1: in a bit of a mess of a film. Just a mess of too a film, much.
0: really, that he happened to be in. I don't see anything wrong with his performances, especially as Electro. He, 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 was, he was perfectly acceptable. They just didn't have an awful lot to do for being the main villain.
1: So, One to look forward to. On other Marvel news... Ms. Marvel has been cast. Yeah, that
0: was the big news came out over this weekend.
1: Yep, so the Ms. Marvel character will be appearing in a Disney Plus series of her own and then branching off to appear in upcoming films. And for those who don't know who Ms. Marvel is, she's a teenage Pakistani-American Muslim who's living in America and very influenced by the US ways and is constantly booking against one part of her family who are devout Muslims and like you, you must like embrace your heritage, and the other part of her family are like, well, no, you're an American girl. Be an American girl. She be- discovers she's an inhuman, has some strange powers which enable her to stretch and bend and misshape her body, very much like uh, Reed Richards from the Fantastic Four, but as a teenager, and she tries to balance power and responsibility and trying to save the world against studying and home life, kind of like. Peter Parker during those teenage years,
0: and you know what? Just from that description alone, I can see how it can make great TV.
1: This is a comic that, when it was first announced, I was like, "Oh, really? Oh, do we need another Ms. Marvel?" Because Ms. Marvel was who we now know as Captain Marvel. Yeah. Who, Carol Danvers. Yeah. So it was like, "Oh, they're just they're just rebranding." And then when I finally latched onto the first six issues and read that first introduction volume, and I was like, "I get it. I completely get it." It, like I say. You can think Peter Parker during the teenage years because it's very similar to those early Spider-Mans where the character, the personality, the impact on real life around them from getting these powers and trying to do the best thing for everything is the main issue. Absolutely brilliant. She, she names herself Miss Marvel because she's obsessed with Captain Marvel. Yeah, she's, she's a fan a huge girl. Isn't she? fangirl. Um, she's also a big fan girl of Spider-Man. She, uh, she apparently ships him on her blog constantly. Uh, but she models herself on Captain Marvel. And hence, she embraces the name. Uh, but the casting, very interestingly, they've gone for someone who's completely new and fresh. Yep. Um, Iman Vellani is a name. And I think it's the right move because you don't bring any excess baggage. You just give a chance for her to shine as this character. We don't know what to expect from her, but she looks the part. Yep. She looks perfect for the role. Looking forward I'm excited that. for this, in case you couldn't tell, because I'm a big fan of Ms. Marvel. I think it's one of the best newer era characters that Marvel came up with. Yeah,
0: and being a big success because it's so well written and it's such a lot of fun to read. Um, while we're in yeah. superhero territory, Andy, uh, Billy Crudup's back in talks to join the Flash movie. Uh, as we yeah. know, he played uh, Barry Allen's father in uh, Justice League. Yep. So there's been numerous directors and writers attached to it. And we know that that is going to go down the multiverse route because we've they've been talking yeah. about Ben Affleck coming back, Michael Keaton reprising his role as Batman. Yeah. Apart from that, we know very little else, but we know that this time, it looks like The Flash is up and running. Yes, pun intended.
1: Oh, quickly moving on from that pun. Uh, ben Wheatley has his adaptation of Rebecca landing on Netflix later this month.
0: Yeah, now I saw this. An interesting choice for Rebecca. Um, from what we know, and we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, this is not a, a remake of the Hitchcock film, but more going back to no. the original novel, which was by uh, Daphne Du Maurier.
1: Wheatley brings mixed opinions from people. Some people love his style of filmmaking. I am one of those people who really, really loves everything that he puts out. Some people are really put off by it.
0: I might be in the I might be in the latter rather than the former.
1: I'm intrigued to see what he does with Rebecca, but I'm more intrigued with some other news that released this weekend, which is that apparently. He's also made another film in complete secret, which he shot over a fifteen-day period, and he's not revealing any details, but says it was a kind of a palate cleanser before he gets ready to do the prep work for Tomb Raider Two, which Tomb Raider Two is so completely different a project to what Wheatley is known for that I get the feeling this palate cleanser is him doing something similar to um, Sightseers, right? A small low-budget film with darker darker comedy moments in it, because that would make sense that that's how he just gets something out of his system before he goes into something big. I'm excited to see what he reveals on it, and I'm excited to see how he releases it. Also, remember, they did
0: a couple of episodes of Doctor Who as well, didn't he?
1: He did, yeah. he's um, he's, he's been quite prominent. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what this secret film is. I'm kind of more than Rebecca, to be honest with you.
0: If you get a chance, have a look um, online, uh, some posters that have been designed for Rebecca by British graphic designer Julian House, and they are really, really striking. Some are kind of a bit of a throwback to sort of Hammer films. Some remind me of uh, lurid uh, Italian horror movies, but definitely worth look, uh, taking a look at.
1: We're big fans of Stephen King. We are massive
0: fans of Stephen King.
1: And we're loving the fact that so much of his work is getting adapted in one way or another. Now there's been news on the remake or readaptation of Firestarter. For Universal and Bloomhouse, Zach Efron has signed up for playing the part of Andy McGee, the father of the young girl with pyrokinetic abilities. Those who don't know Firestarter, it's it's very similar to Carrie in a way that a girl has strange psychic abilities. This time, pyrokinesis, but in this story, she's abducted by a government agency who wants to use her as a weapon. Keith Thomas is going to be directing it, and I, I mean, it's a Bloomhouse production, so it's going to be a low budget, but it's it's hopefully. Going to turn out quite well. I'm I'm so excited for everything Stephen King that's happening at the moment. Yeah, the
0: original movie
1: was was quite disappointing. Uh, John Carpenter
0: yeah. had been attached to it uh, at one point. There was a great script going around, which I've I, I had the chance to read. That wasn't the the film that got made. Uh, Mark Lester, I think, ended up directing it. A great cast. It was just it just felt like a by the numbers thriller and, and missed what the what the book had. So hopefully. This Stephen King adaptation of Firestarter really gets it right.
1: And to round up the news, Doug Lyman has a pandemic heist movie called Lockdown that is now starting shooting and just putting the final cross of the T's and dotting the I's on the last bits of cast at the same time. Now, the, do you know anything about this film? No,
0: very little about this film, but as usually with Doug Lyman, it usually comes out of left of centre.
1: Taken from a screenplay by Stephen Knight, it focuses on a couple during the COVID lockdown who the pressure of living in the same house, has them at each other's throats until they give themselves something to focus on. And they that the thing that they're going to focus on is planning and delivering a high-stakes jewellery heist at Harrods. Okay. Because you've got to have a hobby during lockdown. Yeah. So that's what their hobby is. Uh, filming apparently has already started at Harrods. So this is a project very much on the go. And the names that are already cast, there's already Anne Hathaway in there, which is a nice bit of casting. The people who they're just waiting for the final signatures are Chewitella GF4, Ben Stiller, Lily James, Stephen Merchant, and Mark Gattis. Oh good cast. So that's a lineup that has me salivating at the prospect of a Doug Lyman jewellery heist thriller in Harrods. Before we uh, finish the news, Andy, yep.
0: we're talking of trailers as we were earlier with, with Bora, did you see the Witches trailer? The landed the roll dial uh, adaptation by Robert Zemeckis.
1: I have not seen the trailer yet, no. Yeah, it looks kinda good. Um
0: from, from Zemeckis, it's got that kind of energy. The effects work is, is uh is beautiful as one would expect. Uh, this is going to HBO Max in the States, so um it's not getting a cinema release and going um going to straight to on demand. I don't know what that means for us in the UK whether we'll get it via Netflix or Amazon or even Sky, because HBO and Sky used to have a particularly
1: strong relationship. There might even be a possibility of a short cinema release. I mean, remember that Bill & Ted went straight to streaming in the US, but it got a cinema release internationally because cinemas internationally were ready.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned Anne Hathaway, and she's a star of that. Uh, one other thing that, that we failed to mention a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I just want to quickly make a, a point of it, because, to some extent, his work has been seen in, in some of our favorite films. And that was the passing of Ron Cobb. Now, not a name that most people recognize. He was an American and Australian cartoonist, artist, and film designer. Worked on numerous uh, major films that included Dark Star, uh, Star Wars, Alien, Raiders of the Lost Dark, Conan the Barbarian, Back to the Future, The Abyss, Total Recall. Um, he, uh, he was one of those designers whose work was so influential, that would have turned up in some of your favourite, favourite genre films. He passed away um, on the 21st of September. It was a real shame because he also passed away on his birthday. Um, Yeah. But yeah, Ron Cobb, uh, if you're not familiar with his name, go online, check out his work, and you will see the impact he made on so many of your favourite films. He was a a technical uh, artist, and his creations were... They brought the future to life. And that's it for what we call The News. So, if you're a fan of the show, if you enjoyed what you've been listening to so far, and why not? Because we love doing this and we know that, well, we hope you love to hear it as well. But if you want to get in touch with us, as Andy mentioned earlier, you can do so on
1: Twitter at Filmfile UK.
0: And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please hit that subscribe button. And if you get the chance, just leave a review. We want to know um, what you think, how much are you enjoying, what we can do differently what you'd like to hear on the show. And it makes us very, very happy because we're happy to do it. And as long as you keep listening, we're happy to keep delivering. So please leave a review. It helps us with our, um, uh, our ratings and helps us do other things. Okay, so uh, over the last few weeks, if you're a, a, a solid listener to the, the programme, you will know that I've been setting Andy a challenge on films that he's missed. We've kind of changed the format a little bit and I've been giving Andy a year to pick a classic movie from his collection and last week we chose the year 1962 and a film that i remember as being well a great thriller described as a neo-noir psychological political thriller uh, directed by john frankenheimer and that was the manchurian candidate what
1: what makes it so awful is to keep dreaming a thing like that about sergeant shaw it's been going on for weeks now
0: Oh, I must be going crazy!
1: What you ought to do is to write to Sergeant Shaw. No, I tell you to wrong with me. You ought to write to him and see if anyone else is having dreams like yours. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Maybe, maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that.
0: Anybody can help me, he can! You like him a lot, don't you? Raymond Shaw is the bravest, kindest, warmest, most
1: wonderful human being I've ever known in my life.
0: Starring Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Janet Lee, and Angela Lansbury, based on the novel by Richard Condon that came out in 1959. This is a film which centers on the Korean War veteran, Raymond Shaw, the progeny of a prominent political family. Shaw was a prisoner of war during the conflict in Korea, and while being held, he was brainwashed by his captors. After his discharge, back into civilian life, he becomes an unwitting assassin involved in an international communist conspiracy. Officials from China, the Soviet Union, employed Shaw as a sleeper agent in an attempt to subvert and take over the United States government. So when this film was released in October of 1962 in the States, the US was at the height of Soviet hostility, and especially in in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was wildly acclaimed by critics and was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actress for Lansbury, Best Editing, it was selected in 1994 for the preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. But that means nothing unless Andy Meakin can give it that stamp of approval. So, Andy, I set you the Manchurian candidate. Did you go deep dive undercover or are you a sleeper agent?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I've not had any cards flashed in front of me to activate me at this point in time. Yet. So just wait for the keyword. Just waiting for the keyword. I kind of... This is a film that I kind of enjoyed, but it feels very, very dated, which kind of distracted from being able to engage completely in it. The thriller aspect of it is really well done. And the blend of social satire and political satire within it is layered quite well. It's such an interesting way to do the film. There was moments of this film early on that I was extremely confused as to what was happening, right? Uh, the structure of it was just like, I'm, what? What? I'm not quite getting where where this is going. But very swiftly, I was drawn into the story, and I loved following it through. And it it kept you, it kept you on edges as to, yeah, you know, was he an activated sleeper at, at this point in the film, or is he? Has he broken the programming? It's a very well played out film with a great cast, but it is the dating of it yeah. that lets it down.
0: I mean, it's black and white, isn't it?
1: The, the the problem with it is that you've got the modern version of it that's been made uh 2004, I believe. Yeah,
0: with yeah, it, Washington in the lead role, taking over yeah. the Brexitator uh, role.
1: And I'm more familiar with that one, and I feel that that one feels more relevant to today. And so it was hard to completely engage with um, this Frankenheimer's version of it. But that said, I can understand how Angela Lansbury was nominated for Best act- Supporting Actress in this, because I normally dismiss Angela Lansbury. I think the problem is that, you know, growing up, I kind of knew her from Murder, She Wrote. And there's <laughs> there's only so much of that rubbish that you can put up with. So I kind of disregard her as an actress, but then I see her in something like this, and it's like, oh, hang on a minute. Um, maybe I've completely ignored the talent that she's got. And I want to seek out more of her work. As a result, but the biggest surprise for me was Frank Sinatra.
0: He's absolutely fantastic in this. He's he's uh, he's a, a tour de force because we see Sinatra, we see Sinatra as an actor rather than as a um, a personality and you know, a musical personality. And he's not playing Frank Sinatra in it at all.
1: Yeah, because Sinatra, you know, you know, you know, he was in like the original Ocean's Eleven film. He's got that snappiness, the cool, his kind of showmanship aspect so playing such a a complex and troubled character in this film was such a standout different role for him and it really showcased yeah he 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 had talent he had more talent than just going out and singing New York New York he's he's a he was a great actor so there was a lot that I found pleasing going to watch this film more the discovery of the cast members that i have kind of been dismissive of and I now want to seek out more things from them but like I say, it is just that it looks very set in its time.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, you, as I said at the top end of this segment, that um, it was based around what was happening at the time. There was the rise of Kennedy. Um, yeah. There was uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was the Reds Under the Bed scare, was still a hangover from the fifties. It was it was very 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 much of its time, um, and I think the the updated version, uh, directed by Jonathan Demme, does bring it into the present, into the here and now in in a, in a very good way. And that's the strength of the story, the idea that a politician is actually a sleeper agent. It's not that hard to believe. And, you know, it's still very, very relevant in these times today with everything that, that President Trump was accused of that by letting the, the Russians allow him in, uh, in into, um, into power. It's still a prevalent storyline. Uh, I think it's a classic film. I agree with everything you're saying that it does feel dated doesn't take away the impact of what the storyline's about. As you no. said, Sinatra is,
1: is is a tour de force. And Lawrence Harvey is uh you know, particularly mentioned as Raymond Shaw, who is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. It, it, he's really like he, he really sells that lead role. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's great in it. He's the he's
0: the clean cut Kennedy esque politician. So it makes it even more darker that he has this that he's in fact a sleeper agent. Uh, Lansbury's great in it. Interestingly, even though she plays Lawrence Harvey's mother, she was only three years older than him. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of taboos in this film. There was a, um, there was a concern that, that there was a, a topic of, uh, incest within it and the ideas of brainwashing, but it's, it's yeah. a very, very smart, smart film. And you know what? I can even say that, um, it's right for reinvention even now. Yeah. Because it still feels in, in many ways, um uh, uh it still feels current i think what was missing in the in the remake version is that kind of sense of satire yeah the remake is more of a political thriller there is a sense of uncomfortable satire in in uh, the 1962 version as i said it's a great film great performances and it it was a hit with the academy awards and um, awards around the world and did very very well at the box office and still is one of those it's one of those stories where you say things like manchurian candidate and, and it's a bit like the term Catch-22. People can of know what it is. Can I get it? Okay, so for next week, I have set you the year 1976. Now, when we pulled this out of a hat, and we were looking at the movies, there were a couple of interesting choices. I had to do a bit of juggling. Uh, my instinct was to go with The Man Who Would Be King because I think it's, it's just a damn good film. But then I remembered that Nashville was also 1976. So I'm going to go with Robert Altman's Nashville. A film that I've only seen once. It's a film that crops up in everyone's sort of top 100 best films of all time. I've got a very distant memory of it. So I'm really intrigued to see what you bring and what I remember about Nashville.
1: Yeah, I'm quite looking forward to this one because, you know, we've spoken about Altman before uh, when we've spoken about MASH. And another one of his films, Popeye, is amongst my favourite films of all time. So this is one that I'm quite looking forward to going to explore because I do like to explore works of directors that I generally respect anyway.
0: Right, so Andy and I have had the chance to sit in a darkened cinema together and watch a film. And it feels like a rarity these days. And the chance that we got this week, well, it's a film that everyone will be able to enjoy in a few weeks on Netflix. But if you listen to the top end of the show, we can't stress enough how you should see a film in the cinema. And Netflix have done a very, very smart smart thing with this. They've released uh, a two-week window where it's going to be playing in cinemas before it comes to Netflix. And that film is The Trial of the Chicago 7. Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, it follows the riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. And Richard Nixon's Justice Department brings federal charges against leaders of the youth protest movement in a very nakedly, overly ambitious political move as their lawyer, played by Mark Rylance, tries to keep them out of jail. There are clashes between the restrained Tom Hayden, played by Eddie Redmayne, and the flamboyant Abby Hoffman, played by Sasha Baron Cohen.
1: you know why you're on trial here? The whole world is watching.
0: The whole world is watching. You all right? No words until I saw there. Martin's dead. The whole world is Bob is dead. The whole world is Jesus is dead. The whole world is they tried it peacefully. We gonna try something else. The whole world is the whole world is These rebels without a job. They're a threat to national security. This revolution, we may have to hurt somebody's feelings. When you came to chicago were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation i'm concerned you have to think about it give me a moment would you friend i've never been on trial for my thoughts before okay so as i said this is going to netflix but if you get chance see this in the cinema because this will work a thousand times better on a big screen. It spent 13 years in development. Originally, Spielberg was in the lead to direct and basically developed the project with Sorkin. Uh, Sorkin took over as director after other directors have been mentioned. And even though it's a courtroom drama, which Sorkin, as we know, does, does very well because he's all about the dialogue, it plays out as a big screen movie in the same way that if you've got a chance to see The Irishman on the big screen, it becomes that little bit more engaging. Um, I'll start with you, Andy. What did you think to uh, Sarkin's st- stood at uh, Howler Injustices?
1: We've spoken about this film so much on the run-up to it getting released, so w- people should already know how much of a fan of Sarkin's work I am. I love his biting screenplays. I love his dialogues. Uh, yeah, he- he's really... He's really the master at getting a tight script. And this, from the start to the end, the runtime flew by. It was engrossing from the start off. It's well cast with an amazing, diverse talent in there. And the courtroom elements, Sorkin is, is perfectly suited for a courtroom drama because he gets the best out of every character's personality. I'm genuinely, I rated this straight away as like at least a four and a half out of five film. And I'm thinking it's, the more that I'm thinking about it, the more I'm edging to think this might be my first five star film of this year. I, I'm
0: going to go exactly with everything you say. I might stay at four and a half for reasons that I'll, I'll mention. For those who don't know what the flashpoint of this story is, because it's, a, yes, it's an American story. It, a little bit like we've talked about the Manchurian Candidate, it has a relevance to today. So Extremely relevant. in 1968 in the U.S., it was embroiled in the war with Vietnam, which was an unpopular, unpopular war. Uh, and especially the draft, which was basically taking young people. If you failed the draft, you had to go and fight unless you were you could find a way out of the draft. And many people did. The youth of America basically woke up to the fact that they were being killed. Wholesale slaughter and and a lot of very, very brave young people. And, and this was. Something that you know, without getting on my high horse, this is something that is clearly lacking in the youth of today. They bonded together to fight government, to stand up to government, um, not by signing petitions, not by going on Instagram or Twitter. They they bonded together and they clashed with the Chicago Police Department in this particular one, who were ruthless in their approach yeah. uh, and basically acted acted as a, as a militia, as an army. The government basically decided. The, the, the Nixon government it was just voted in the the Democratic Party failed and the, failed to win the election that year uh, and Nixon's government came in Nixon's story can be seen in, in in other great movies they brought in an ambitious prosecutor played played by uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt who's always fantastic as Richard Schultz and he's ordered by the U.S. attorney basically painted here as as, as a as a Trump surrogate to personally and a political crusade even though None of these people had met before this to conspire to bring them to put them in jail, uh, basically as a sense of uh, of crushing this this youth uh, youth uprising as the way the government saw it. It's a really powerful film. As for me, as you would expect with uh, with anything that Sorkin writes, the dialogue is spot on, the pacing is fantastic. The, the probably the only element that that lets it down for me is. Is Sorkin's direction. I would like to have seen Fincher do this. I would like to see seen Spielberg do this. Because even though he knows how to shoot a courtroom drama, I think one of those other directors or another director taking that work would have brought something to to it that that he didn't. That's nothing to say there's anything wrong with it. It just makes that half a star for me that I would like to have seen it directed by, by a Fincher.
1: It's important to point out with regards to the story that when the riots originally took place because there was a lot of blame placed on how the police had handled it and how the police had apparently incentivized it mm-hmm. and started like started off the violence that led to the full riots the government that was in charge at the time and the like you know the, the chief justice at the time had decided not to take charges against anyone because it would have embroiled the police as well but it's the political aspect of the new Chief Justice coming in who goes, well, I want to make my stamp on it by overruling his decision. So it's it's much later than the events where they're all rounded up to be taken to trial as the Chicago 7.
0: Which at one point is actually the Chicago 8, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Um, one of the ones being prosecuted was also under suspicion for uh, stabbing in another state. And so there's a lot of extra political aspects put into there as well.
0: Yeah, which was the Black Panther leader, Bobby Seale.
1: Yeah. Barely
0: in Chicago during the unrest,
1: but he yep. gets lumped in with it. There's there's so much political wranglings going on. And this is how Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Richard Schultz gets introduced to it, is he is brought in to be set to be told, you're doing this. And he straight away is questioning, is like, but, you know, I, I get it, but, is this right? So he, he plays quite an interesting character, even though he's the prosecutor, you kind of see that he wants to do the right thing, but he needs to do his job at the same time, and and he delivers it, he delivers it as finely as everyone else delivers all their roles, you've already mentioned Mark Rylance, who is absolutely, I mean, I think you described it after, as we left, he's effortless, I mean, you had described it just as it started, after his first line, you led across and went, He's effortless in the role, isn't he? He is.
0: Isn't he? He's just <laughs> such a. There's such a calmness in, in Mark Rylance's performance. it's, it always comes from the heart. You, you never feel he's a man who's learnt his lines. You feel a man no. who's living the part. Of course, he's become as Tom Hanks is for Spielberg, one of his go to guys. He's been in so many of his films over the last few years, and and they, and they work so well together. And and they, it gives the feeling of almost being a, a Spielberg film. I know it's a DreamWorks production. But looking at the cast, it's a it's a great cast, as
1: we said. I mean, Langella as um, Judge Julius Hoffman.
0: Frank Langella is 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 great in everything, and he's just a an on-screen character actor who just brings his A-game to everything. But he's the increasingly unhinged Judge Hoffman as portrayed by Frank Geller, is at times comedic and frightening, and sometimes yeah. that in in the same scene.
1: And that's important is you know th- there are moments of levity and comedy within here, but it's in typical Sorkin manner. That it's just a bit of stress relief, but at the same time, the comedy has hidden meaning to it. To cast a kind of like, ooh, this is uncomfortable," and or or this is this is a bad situation. The comedy comes from the interactions between Sasha Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman, and Frank Langella, as Langella's judge is making mistakes on how to pronounce names, getting confused over situations, and he's just throwing back and make, yeah when he makes clear that they're not related. Um, it gives a bit of a laugh, but it's like this is showing how unfit to be a judge this guy was and how unfair this trial is as a result.
0: As we go through the cast, I mean, Jeremy Strong is fantastic as um, was Sacha Baron Cohen, the counterculture joker. Eddie Redmayne, who is one of those actors who I can kind of take or leave. I I thought he was fantastic as Tom Hayden and Tom Hayden went on to become a politician. He's kind of the aggressive, almost but moderate, voice in this that tries to be the voice of clarity and he's fantastic i think he disappears into this role which uh, um just makes it so much stronger I, I had to kind of go is that eddie Redmayne after all yes mm-hmm. it is and he's, he's so good in it as you expect every actor working for sulkin brings their a-game the, the dialogue is superb it's tense it's funny as you mentioned i wanted to stand up and cheer at the end of it um yeah. i think it's relevant today it's scary at times that how government can can take control. This is, is, is a film of now, even though it's in uh, 1968 and probably for a period that most cinema goers aren't even aware of because it's, it would feel to be an American story. But I think it's, it's a modern day story that affects everybody in the world.
1: Yep, completely agree. And uh, this is something which now that we're seeing it on the big screen, when it drops on Netflix on the 16th of this month, I'm probably going to be watching this again.
0: I, I agree. I will watch this again. I think it's a condemnation of uh, of, of government overreach, of, of the idea of a police state. Of course, there is relevance to what's been happening in the build-up to the US election. It's Sorkin at the end of the day. Anything he writes is, is worthwhile of your time. He can make any legal proceedings, as he did with uh, A Few Good Men. So compelling. Excellent film. Four and a half
1: out of five for me. Four and a half, pushing on a five. Like I, I, I kind of agree with the direction aspect of it The in the hands of a stronger director, I think it might have had more impact. A Sorkin kind of directs very much like a TV director. Yeah. However, yeah, it, bearing in mind, this is his second big screen directorial film. I mean, this first one was Molly's Game a few years ago. So I'm willing to kind of look past that. And when I revisit it, when it comes out on Netflix, That's probably when it will end up getting topped up to a five because I think it will fit nicely. But this is a film definitely worth seeing on the big screen. The star names alone should be enough for it. And it is the best film that I've seen this year.
0: I'll go with that.
1: Quickly, before we do the um, neat thing, I just also want to mention that a film that we've mentioned over the past few weeks as examples of great films that are appearing on cinema screens that you should be going and see. This is the one that Commode raved about and said was absolutely amazing film. And Rocks is the film. It is still showing on some independent cinemas and some limited cinema screens. It landed on Netflix, if you've not got a chance to go and see it on the big screen. So get this film watched. It's the story of a teenage girl whose mother has a history of depression and suddenly vanishes. She leaves her some money and a note saying, sorry, little girl, sorry, baby girl, I need to just get away from a bit. I, I will be back and I love you lots. But it leaves her in charge of her brother and she's trying to keep afloat, pay bills, and keep going on with her normal school life. And the impact that this has on her relationship with her friends is a strain as her whole life starts to crumble around her. And I watched this the other day, and it, it was so natural in its presentation. It didn't feel scripted. It didn't feel false. And it felt really heartfelt. And I, I was I was crippled by the end of it. It was a real, a real life-changing kind of film. Thoroughly recommended. It's a film for production. It's on Netflix at the moment. Get it checked.
0: Okay, my recommendation for streaming is the film that we reviewed right at the beginning of, uh, of us getting together. It was the last film that we that we reviewed before lockdown. And that was Pixar's Onward. Watched it again. Watched it with the child. It's so good. It really is a film of two halves for Pixar. There is a moment where it's just a, it's an adventure film. And then it hits piece of the script uh, and it's so it's done so deftly where it becomes something much much more and becomes an emotional journey and and it just hits you in the chest and and of course the animation is beautiful as one would expect from pixar but it's it's just their their style of storytelling it's so beautifully done when all the all the pieces fall into place is when you realize what it's really really about it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful film, and it's what Pixar do so well. Absolutely love seeing it again. Okay, uh, this part of the programme is just before we leave. We have a look over the last week, and basically, what have we been reading? What have we been watching? What do we like? What has been what we call our neat things? Andy, what has been your neat thing?
1: So, my neat thing this week is kind of a throwback to something that caught my attention as a child in the 80s. When the original series ran, and now has a brand new series, and that is Spitting Image. I'm so jealous that you've you. Now seen i've this. i've pit i've campaigned for how glorious BritBox is yeah. quite heavily, um over the past couple of months. I think they've really got the game together. There's a lot of great content on there, lots of old content, some old classic British movies as well. Now they have their very first new production, and this is this is where your BritBox subscription is hopefully going to be going. Into them generating new content, and Spitting Image is the first of that. Now, for those who don't know what Spitting Image is, back in the 80s, at the time of Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, a satirical puppet show was created to just do short little interlinking sketch things that are mocking the politicians and the public figures of the day, be it celebrities, you know, Michael Jackson parodies getting done, huge amount of politics in there. And, you know, little ongoing sketch storylines that run over a season, such as the president's brain is missing when Ronald Reagan's brain is taken out to protect it and then goes missing and it gets replaced with a walnut. The original series had us in stitches when we watched it back then, and it was responsible for things like the chicken song <laughs> and other memorable songs that are satirical, biting, and absolutely hilarious. Watching the old episodes, which are available on BrickBox, they're not as funny as I remember them, right. but it's more because... The very of their time, and it because it, it's set within that culture of the time. Back then, they hit more because we were we understood the references straight away. But the new series, I belly laughed. The new first episode of the new series dropped, and it's the I was howling with laughter watching it. It was perfectly on the nose with its mock of Trump. You've got mocking of Boris Johnson, who is perfect, but even more perfect is Dominic Cummings. The version of Dominic Cummings that he designed is like uh, Ming the Merciless alien, <laughs> um, with like great big like alien kind of like collars. His head pulses every now and then as he's thinking, and he keeps talking about he want. Can I eat the baby? Oh, you won't let me eat your babies. Okay, what will? <laughs> what about the other humans? I have plans for the humans. So he's they're doing him as like a, a weird alien menacing um, influencer. And every time that like Boris thinks that he's made a decision, like, he'll turn around and say, yes, I knew that would be your decision. <laughs> Absolutely, perfectly satirical. And one moment that proper broke me was they've got um, Greta Puppet and they use her for weather reports. And so it's like, and now over to Greta with the weather. And she just stood in front of me map and just goes, it's hot! And then it cuts off. <laughs> um, that was it. I, I was on the floor creased. This Fantastic. is brilliant. There was the worry that Spitting Image would come back and it's like, but is Watered it down, isn't it, quite? It Does in it the, in this it They they have hit the ground running and it, it hits all the current situation perfectly. And it's up to date because this week's first episode was relate, relevant to things that have happened over the past week.
0: Well, that was always the thing with with uh, Spitting Image. They recorded it the yes. day before oh. and <laughs> some points before before airing, it was known at the time. Yeah, yeah fantastic. I, I'm glad it's not lost its bite it's it because that's what it is. Um, and to some extent, it shaped politics back in the day. You it couldn't did. think of uh, John Major, uh, other than being grey, uh, <laughs> you couldn't think of Ronald Reagan without Aww. a brain. It broke politicians. Can I
1: have more peas, please? Yeah, absolutely.
0: People <laughs> remember that. I hope it has the bite. The only the only shame is it's not getting a bigger audience on, on Brit Box, but hopefully it'll pull people into BritBox. Box. Yeah. Okay, mine is uh the boys season two. We're about halfway through. Uh they've made an interesting choice to release it weekly. I don't have a problem with that. Apparently lots of fanboys do, but that's fanboys for you. Um yeah but is it as good as a season one Yes, and so much better. I'm enjoying this season, like Umbrella Academy, I'm enjoying it so much more. I think because now you know what you want out of it. You know what The, the, the Boys gives you, and that is ultraviolence, exploding heads, some of the worst language I've ever seen on television. Um, It's, fan- it's fantastic stuff. So basically, if you've not caught up with it, uh, it's on Amazon Prime, the anti-superhero vigilantes known as The Boys are wanted at the beginning of the series. They're in hiding. Their leader, Billy Butcher, played by Carl Urban, has gone off grid. New recruit, Huey, and Sympathetic Soup, Starlight, have plans to bring down the bad guys. Well, all the good guys, depending on your point of view, the Seven, from their parent company, Void, uh, from the inside. It's everything you want from from the boys. Uh, the characterization's gone up to 11. Um, the motivation of, of, uh, of the characters become weirder and darker. Um, hybrid Captain America, Superman, Homelander, played by the excellent Anthony Starr, reveal their true nature by destroying. In, in season one, they destroyed a plane containing the political flows. This time, it gets it's it, it's up the ante with with a character called Stormbringer, who's brought into into the game. It's what you would hope for if you enjoyed the the boys season one. This is this is just a, a dark hole of of comedy gore. Uh, as I said, bad language like you've never known. It's just just fabulous. Thoroughly enjoying it. And I actually, for one, uh, I'm enjoying the fact that they are releasing it week by week because it gives you a yeah. chance to think about it and talk about it rather than just binge it and let it go over your head. So my recommendation, yeah. my neat thing,
1: is The Boys Season 2. Completely agree. Everyone should be watching it. I think it's become more confident this season as yeah. well.
0: There, there is that dark, confident element to it. It's fantastic.
1: It touches on very relevant things, such as like the the use of memes to mislead and um, alter people's perceptions Yeah, yeah,
0: it's, it's really, really, really up to date, and it's it, it does it. You're right. It does feel relevant again, uh, as we talked about with the Manchurian candidate. Uh, it is very much of the now. Okay, that's it for this week. Join us next week. Uh, but before we go, normally at this time, I'll come up with a, a pithy quote from a film. I'm just going to leave you all with hashtag Save